Hi, I'm Fritzi Horseman, and welcome to Compassion in Action. Today, my guest is Richard Morellas. Richard is a dynamic public speaker and expert communicator with advanced leadership and communication certifications with the world-recognized Toastmasters International. He's a certified career coach, an inspiring leader, and powerful orator who delivered over 65 transformational coaching seminars and workshops. Having spent over 20 years in prison, Richard made abundant contributions as a co-founder of the Inside Solutions Think Tank. Richard graduated cum laude with a Bachelor of Arts in Healthcare Management from California Coast University. He has an advanced certification as an alcohol and other drug counselor who received a certificate of recognition from the California State Senate for his contributions to the recovery community. He's a graduate of Initiate Justices Institute of Impacted Leaders and has spoken as a criminal justice reform advocate at the California State Capitol on five separate occasions and has conducted 90 legislative visits. Richard is also the only known incarcerated person to earn the status of associate trainer from John Maxwell's equipped leadership. Richard was found suitable for parole at his initial board of parole hearing and was released in March of 2019. Today, he is the director of outreach and engagement at Crop Organization and host of the Prison Post podcast. He trains transformational personal empowerment seminars in carceral settings, community colleges, and to leaders of nonprofit organizations. And now my conversation with the incredible and unstoppable Richard Morales. And what is your title now again? Well, you're, you changed your title again. I'm the kind of the, the, the crop guy who, you know, some policy work, go into prison, train our coaches, podcasts, you know, digital marketing. So it's kind of like the guy who, you know, he, get, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what, uh, you're the, you're the about. face of crop basically. Right. Yeah. Later on when, when we can do like tours of our locations, I'll probably do those and just, um, I say this with humility. I think the ability to God-given ability to um, connect and, and with people quickly and network and be authentic and as a natural expression of who I am, you don't have to fake it. If I do, I fake it till you make it. <laughs> no, um, but <laughs> I really felt that. I really felt uh, your yeah. humility, but also your your magnificence, right? Like how. How great thou art, right? Yeah, and like I say, uh, um, I, I like to say, you know, it's, it's, you know, Fritzy, um, this last birthday I had at 45 years old on Facebook and through phone calls and cards, and I probably received, uh, I don't know, 200, 300 messages, kind words from people, and I don't know, something about getting with you, I get emotional quick, but it's 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 interesting that I can remember a birthday where the only one that would reach out to me is my mom. And it wasn't to come over her house for dinner because I still had it. I had burned all my bridges and broken all trust and I had nowhere to go. And um, I was just uh, committed to my drugs and criminality and you know, to come full circle and to be restored in almost every way. Um, it's very humbling. So, you know, it takes 
I think trust and uh, humility to talk about your areas of giftedness, but I know that it was, you know, somebody bigger than me, you know, some, um, I call God and he, um, gave me a new mindset, new beliefs and new values. And I learned those until like I just shared, it became a natural expression of who I'm committed to being in this world today. So yeah, it's uh, amazing. It's humbling. It's awesome. By his grace. By his grace, by the universe's grace. It doesn't matter how you, how you see it. You know, we have to leave room for all of, all of this magnificence that, that we've been introduced to in this world. And you're an example of somebody who is remembered, who has remembered who he is. And it's not a restoration. You, you remembered because when we come into this world, there's nothing wrong with us. And then trauma on top of trauma just piles on top. And we think that we're wrong. Right. Yeah. And there's a lot of that. Just when I went back for Thanksgiving to my mom's house, we visited the town I grew up in until the age of 14, the housing projects, just driving in there creates a feeling of despair. Um, I was showing my wife and, and my stepsons um, where I grew up, uh, the Section 8 housing, and the even the park that us as kids played in is now um, a substation, a police substation. It was like a very violent and dangerous place. And, and <clears throat> so, you know, um, I didn't know we were poverty. I didn't know we were poor. Um, even the kids I played with were, you know, I, I didn't know. I didn't know until later in life, all the danger. Maybe we were safe because we were under, you know, 10. Or, I was 10 and a half years old was when I moved out of there. But to go back there, I could feel the despair. And a lot of the things that um, impact you are not growing up with a father, not meeting my biological father until I was 14. And I would always say, like, he's never been in my life, so it doesn't bother me one bit. And then I realized later, you know, it had an impact on me. <clears throat> so, um, you know, I, I agree with you. I agree with you too. Yeah, like you said, re rediscovery who I could have been. I remember teachers saying, he's so smart if he would only apply himself, if you'd only apply yourself. And I used to think that's what people said. Parents or teachers said because they were supposed to be nice not because they were being honest and now i realize it's you know they were they were being honest and when i finally did a um, whole new worlds and beauty opened up so yeah and so your story i have to say sounds very similar to every single man i've met in prison right <laughs> or and woman um you know grew up in a poor neighborhood probably father absent or not there that much um, not there, not there. Um, <clears throat> mother working either addicted to drugs or working too much two jobs to support us me and my little sister so never home latchkey kids but she was a, a beautiful mom very compassionate and loving um but yeah we i'm i walked to kindergarten by myself um and I wanted to, it was a couple blocks away, but nowadays who would dream of letting their kid in kindergarten walk to school uh, until the fifth grade, right? 
So, um, yeah, my mom, she just did everything she could with the tools she had, a single mom, and brought me into this world at the age of 17, you know. So, We're not here to, to take your mom out. She's She did the best she could, but what happened, though, did, just so you and the audience really understand, she wasn't there to help you recognize yeah. you and and your magnificence. She couldn't reinforce it every day because she wasn't there. And mm. so you went looking for that outside the home, right? Is that you? Yeah. Right. Can you tell us it's, you went gang or? At, per, at first, um, I'd say up until the age of 10 and a half, it was just me and her and my little sister who's four and a half years younger than me. And with the neighborhood kids, you know, we were riding bikes and, you know, stealing candy and things like that. You know, those were, those were my peers, but my mom uh, met somebody and got married after I turned 10 and a half. And then we left that part of town to a, a better part of town, which is still, in the, you know, on the other side of the track, still a bad neighborhood. <clears throat> but um, he, he was good to my mom and didn't, um, well, he didn't drink and do drugs and call her names and things like that. But he was from a different type of um family value system that old machismo so i never remember him saying happy birthday merry christmas i love you um uh good job um no pats on the back nothing it was do this do that do this and you're gonna learn how to be a man and it was all compliance and even when i was growing up i would sit next to my mom at, before he ever came around and watched TV at night, you know, the mama's boy and want to be in the kitchen with her learning how to learn how to cook and just wanted to be by her side. If we went to, out of town, I want to be by her side. And then when that came, when he came along, he did everything he could to stop that. And he'd say, don't sit next to your mom, you know, stop being a baby or get out of the kitchen. Boys belong outside. And in fact, it was boys outside girls inside so you know if it's eight o'clock in the morning you need to be outside and come back in when it's dark because that's what boys are supposed to do and visiting my grandparents was the norm before he came around and now he's saying um you know you don't need to be going over there and bothering them I'm like, they're not saying i'm bothering them they, they want me over there so it's, it felt like all the love the affection the attention the acceptance that i did have from the few family members that live close by was taken hmm. and a new resentment and anger uh, started fueling towards him who had stolen my mom. And he was of the type that I felt my mom began to lose her identity. You know, she was young, probably 27, 28, you know, they hit it off well in the beginning, but eventually trying to live for him and his ways and his family's ways and their values. And um, before we'd go to visit our family members' houses and that was all taken away. So I felt like she was going, doing everything to be a, a good wife, but um, partner, but from a system like she doesn't even believe in today and lost her independence and identity. And I grew resentment for her for that. Like, why are you letting this guy, no, this isn't who you are. You know, let's go to our family's house. What's going on here? So all that anger and resentment and bitterness grew towards a rage for him. I remember having conversations by the age of 14 to take him out. You know, mm. And wow. that much anger and rage um, 
pulled a sword out on him one time when he was going to beat my sister. He wasn't really violent, but one, but my sister was younger when he met her and pulled off his belt one day to, to hit her. And, and I, uh, there was these old decorative swords on the wall with ball and chain sword and two ball and chains that would hang like something weird to hang in your hallway. And I, I pulled the sword out and I, I said, if you touch my sister, I'll kill you. And I was 14 years old. So, you know, and he screamed at me, but I didn't back down. And, you know, eventually I went to the, it was at the sixth grade bus stop, seeing the eighth graders, the older kids over there, seemingly having fun, smoking pot. And I was looking over there at them and one of them caught my attention. He said, come on over here. And here, hit this. So sixth grade smoking pot. And that's where that acceptance that became my new crowd, the acceptance, the affection. And not all of them were gang members, but um, definitely, you know, young kids, um, probably similar paths. And um, <clears throat> finding a community amongst ourselves of uh, rebellion, uh, anger, um, a disregard for rules and laws and things like that. And then in prison, how did that happen? So somehow um, I ran away at 14, I lived with a couple aunts, got kicked out of their house. And one of them thought it would be a great idea to find my biological father in the early days of the internet. And they found him in Carlsbad, New Mexico. And um, so called him up one day, got his phone number, called him up and um, said, um, I'm your son. And he invited me over for spring break. And my dad is a life of the party kind of guy, very funny, he's 6'2", 240, big guy. He was a tough guy. He was a fighter, but he was also affectionate, um, alcoholic, you know, drug addict, user, marijuana every day, 18-pack of Budweiser every day. And when I first went there, you know, he let me drink with him. So by that age, 14 years old, you know, I'd already been drinking with my buddies and stuff. So to have a a new parent who's like, come here, you're my son, you know, I'm so happy, here, drink a beer with me. I thought it was great, but what I that first week in spring break was great, and he said, well, why don't you come live with me in the summer? So I went to live there for two years, and there's a lot of good qualities about my dad, but I would say overall it was sort of a bizarre world where I learned, you know, what I consider to be a man today. Um, I learned all the backwards ways from him and that's what he learned from his dad right that learned behavior and um so if you lost at any type of sports you know you were weak you were soft you didn't push yourself hard enough if you couldn't hook up with girls and you know have sex at 15 years old then you know you were scared and you were a punk um if I didn't retaliate um, in a fight or I lost, I'd have to go back and do it again. You know, it was just all backwards thinking and, you know, just the language, the abuse, racism, you know. I remember losing a race that I was in first place for 800 meters. I was in first place for 700 and I ended up getting passed up, got fifth place. And I remember having a ride home. Most kids go with their parents afterwards to like McDonald's or something. And me, it was, you're going to ride home on the bus and we'll talk about when you get home. You get home, 
all the guy, all the older men are drinking outside. And go inside, get a beer, come out here and tell you, tell us how you let that N word beat you. Mm. And it was a, a black guy who won the race. And growing up, my mom, I knew that was wrong. And um, I was, I knew what he was saying was wrong, but I was also afraid of him. You know? So, and I just remember saying, um, I did my best. And he said, you know why you, you didn't win that race? It's because you don't have a kick. You know why you don't have a kick? Because his mom raised you soft. And uh, so I didn't like that. And I said, well, we'll never know because you weren't there, were you? And um, mm -hmm. so within a second, he was in my face. He said, what would you say? You want to speak up as a man? When I speak as a man, I remember having my head down, sitting on the balcony, and all of his friends saying, kick back, leave him alone, you know, just, you know, like trying to diffuse the situation in their own way. And he said, no, he wants to be a man. Let's, let's hear it. And I remember looking up and pride and anger. And and I just said, I said, we'll never know because you weren't there, were you? And then, boom, just punched me in the chest. And I flipped off the back of the balcony, ran down around a tree and threw a roundhouse kick at my head. And I remember barely ducking and it grazing me. And I backed up and I was thinking, well, I, I remember saying, what are you doing? Like, 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 you're my dad. Like, why are you, you just threw a roundhouse kicking me like as a grown man. He's like, come on. And in his eyes were um, like, he was gonna, he was gonna show me that I don't know that he, what it is to be a man. And so I took off running and at that, I was faster than him by then. So he, he didn't catch me, but that was one of uh, many times. And I didn't talk to him for 22 years and reconnected with him out here. And, and um, we have a good relationship now. He's positive and we've talked through some of those things. Um, but you know, that's, that's what I was faced with. And I didn't know it for T, you know, I didn't know the full impact all those things were having on me and my decisions and my way of thinking those things that contributed to the way that my mindset was being formed but yeah um long story short i ran away from him at my senior year by the skin of my teeth graduated was introduced to back to my mom and her husband so every weekend i stayed gone i stayed gone with my friends i um I had a job after work, after school, I had to go to work and I worked on the weekends. But after that, I'd go stay with my friends and halfway through my senior year began using methamphetamines. And that was the first drug besides marijuana that I used. And I remember them saying, if you do this, if you drink, if you do this, snort this meth, you can um, drink all night. And that's what I wanted to be, the life of the party, you could drink all night. And that's why I did it. And I never stopped. And I graduated number 747 out of 777 in my class, as my grandma says, by the skin of your teeth. And um, I don't know how I did it, you know, but I was the first one I found to graduate after school. My stepdad said, you got to go. I go and start working as, at a, as a server at a sports bar. I'm drinking there. They don't know that I'm under 21. I'm playing it off like I'm 21. One of my uncle tells me, one of my uncles tell, tells me, you're headed nowhere fast. You're, you know, drinking and drugging. You ought to go to the military. And so I go to the military. 
thrive there for a while, um, graduate from boot camp, graduate from electrician school. And then when they ask you, where do you want to go? I should have said Germany, you know, Ramstein or Frankfurt or, you know, some other country or something. But I said, California, I came back to California where I was close to friends and, and I went back to, you know, the, the mud and I went back to the drugs. And after about two years, I was separated. And I didn't tell my family because like the one thing that they were, well, they were maybe proud of me for other things, graduating and uh, some other things. Um, um, but I, I was so ashamed of getting kicked out. I didn't tell them and I just gave myself over to, to drug dealing and using and partying and eventually, um, um, through, through robbing and stealing and a litany of crimes, uh, just got got myself 25 years to life by the age of 20 and I spent um from the age of 20 to 41 in, in incarcerated and then while you were incarcerated you had an epiphany right something happened can you tell us yeah. about that yeah certainly you would think that 25 to life at the age of 20 is most people think that's a wake-up call. Like, you need to change your life. Look, you're 20 years old. And you got, by the time I hit the level four Calipatria, um, 1998, 1999, you would think that would be enough to for someone to want to change. And it wasn't. Because all I knew was I wouldn't, before Prop 17, my board date wasn't until December of 2021. And here I am in 1998. And I remember my coach once saying, when you're in survival mode, the only goal is to keep the spacesuit alive. As if you're in space, you cannot let nothing happen in that spacesuit. Mm. And here I was in a whole new world. I remember one man being killed on the yard within two weeks of me being there. And they had cameras in all the buildings. And everybody, they said, yard down. We all had to lay on our stomachs. They checked the camera. And they found the guy who killed him. And they took him and the dead person off the yard. And then they said, resume yard. And everybody gets back up and goes back to doing what they were doing. Um, that was terrifying for me internally. And I began to put up masks. So I needed to be, I was from Southern California. So, you know, I played the part. I played the part, fake it till you make it, um, go along to get along. I'm gonna do whatever it takes to fit in. And my cellie at the time was uh, one of the shot callers. He had a lot of drugs. We ended up going on the eight or nine month lockdown. And he had um, a lot of heroin, a lot of cocaine, a lot of meth. And for the first time in my life, he wanted someone to get high with. And um, and I acquiesced, you know. So next thing you know, um, he's injecting me with heroin. And I was too scared putting the needle in my arm myself, but turned into a nine month run of um, probably using heroin three times a day, the needle. And sometimes we do Belushi's and cocaine and meth at the same time, along with the heroin, or there'd be times that I have 10 holes on this arm, 10 holes on this arm from doing, it was an all meth day. Um, and nine months into that, this was um, at the end of, um, November of 1999, we did too much heroin and a very strong amount. 
and we were near death in the cell. Um, he was laying on his bed, turning blue, a big guy. And he was saying, when you, someone does heroin, it does something to your, your voice. They talk like they have a frog in their voice. You know, it does something to your vocals. And he was just down there saying, don't let me die. Don't let me die. And laying on his side. And I did everything I could to get on the top bunk, to my bunk. And I'm leaning over the top bunk saying, are you all right? Are you all right? And what's going through my mind is, you're both going to die in this cell right tonight. I, I would feel my heart. And normally, you know, your heart, you can feel your heart. And it's doom, 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 you know, and my heart was like, boom, boom. And in that moment, I felt real fear. I started seeing my grandparents, my parents, the a lot of the happy moments of life and the words that went through my mind, I could hear them like they were yesterday. Um, here it is. You're going to die as a drug addict in prison. You failed your mom. You failed your sister. You failed your grandparents, all the people that loved you. Society, you turned your life into a mess and caused harm and brought harm to the world. And here's your consequences. You're going to die as a drug addict in prison. And I laid there and I said, please, God, don't let me die as a drug addict in prison. Don't let them call my mom, but tell her that, um, you know, you're going to have to pick up your dead son. And I said, just let me live. Please let me live and I'll, I'll change. I'll do whatever. And I had no clue what that meant. I had no clue. I was to fear was real there. Fear was tangible there. Um, and um, we woke up the next day, you know, it, it was eight hours of that, eight hours of agony you know, through the night and um, sick the next day. And I told my cellmate, I'm done. And he said, come on, man, you ain't done. That was just a strong batch. Um, and I said, no, I'm done. And he's like, what? And the first thing he said was, you better not be bringing no Bible in here. Don't be bringing no Bible in here. You be out of here. And I didn't even say that, you know. Like one day I wanted to read the Bible or, or have a relationship with God, but I didn't say that. I just said, I'm done. So that was the last time I ever used drugs. Uh, it's been uh, June 10th or will be, is my sobriety date. It will be 23 years completely sober. And November um, just passed. I was 24 years and no drugs. And I relapsed one time with alcohol at another yard. And that's another crazy story, but. After that, I was done for, done for good. So, doing 23 years, I love who I am sober, but that was my first major um, new decision that I was willing to plant my flag on for the rest of my life. There's an author, his name's Chris Wilson. He wrote a book called The Master Plan. And he says, rock bottom is a choice. And once you, once you decide that's the, as low as you're going to go, there's only one way to go. And I like a, that. Yeah. I like that. I used yeah. to think of rock bottom as like like layers. Um, but yeah, it is a choice. It doesn't you don't have to go that far. <laughs> Please don't do 25 to life and almost die in your cell as a heroin addict to make some changes. Please. So now you're in a level four. How did you get to a level two? I mean, what so tell yeah. tell us how this one decision changed everything, because it changed everything. Well, the point system was a lot different back then. It was harder to get to a level three. But thankfully, um, 
I only went in with 54 points. 51 could get you to a level um, three. And I went and talked to the counselor. I said, I want to go to a level three. It was, and I'd been there probably nine months. And thankfully the counselor was like, well, you can't, you have 54 points. You have to wait. And there's no jobs back then for somebody um, on my custody levels, like close A, close B. It's, it's all changed now. It's, it's a lot easier of a, to get jobs in the system. But back then you might go five years. I remember going like eight years before I could get a job because there wasn't um, jobs available. So, or vocations or rehabilitated programs. So long story short, she says, well, did you graduate from high school? I said, yeah. I said, well, get your high school diploma and I can take a, a point and a half off. Uh, I said, I was in the military too. She's like, do you have your DD-214? No, but I'll get it. So I asked my mom, she got it sent in and and within a month, you know, I, I was able to get my points dropped to 51. And then that, I was on my way to Old Corcoran. Mm. And Old Corcoran was also a, a violent place. But with all, I was 20 going on. I was almost 22 years old when I went there. And I remember um, going there and telling them, um, I'm not, a. I may have lived here. In San Diego, I was a resident, uh, born in Bakersfield, but I'm no longer um, um, my life. I'm going to change my life. I'm changing my life. My life's with God. And um, so I'm not going to go by the rules. Like, oh, you're going to go by some of the rules. But okay, so don't let us catch you fighting, drinking, gambling, pornography. Don't get in our business if other another race jumps on you and something that's on you you have no support basically go over there and and um do whatever you want to go, go live your life but um we'll be watching and if you make one mistake we'll come for you then a two-on-one or maybe stab you at the, at the at the worst and try to kill you so you know to a lot of people make fun of people who find god or um or begin to practice um, some type of faith while incarcerated. But let me tell you, it's a, it's a dangerous thing um, because if once you make that commitment, out here you can go and you can say you're a person of faith and you know go to the bars and do whatever. And nobody's, you could live a secret life. No one's going to know. There's not the consequences of death. So in there, it's, it's dangerous. And so the whole jailhouse religion thing is, you know, some people that, they make fun of that or, you know, he found religion in prison. No, I didn't find religion. I found a relationship with someone who loved me and cared about me. Or they say, well, you were brainwashed. Well, I needed my brainwashed. I was jacked up. So, um, but I found in the words of the Bible, began to read the Bible, made some goals. I never finished a book before going to prison. Before I left, read almost set, um, 750 books and maybe another 80 college books. Um, and, I made a goal to read the Bible 40 times and I started reading and I read about Jesus and I remember his life. They would say he looked on the multitudes with compassion and he loved them. And deep down, I had that love for my mom and for my grandparents that they were compassionate. They were empathetic. And what, what I learned was at some point I cut off empathy and compassion from who I was being in the world. And I wanted that back. I wanted the empathy and compassion of Christ. And the way he lived his life, and he loved people, and he didn't judge people, and he um, he served people, and he met their needs, and um, 
I, re I read about him in the New Testament maybe hundreds of times because um, he was the model. And I never read the, anything like that before. I never, I never, I never read about someone who lived so sacrificially. And I read other books too, like Dr. King. Um, I remember him saying, you know, he was assassinated and we know about his work in the civil rights movement. But the one thing that stuck out to me in reading about him and other leaders like Gandhi. So he says, when they give my eulogy, tell them not to talk about my three or 400 awards. Um, don't tell them that I was a drum major in college. Tell them that I was a drum major for justice. Tell them that I tried to love somebody. You know, and that was antithetical to the way I had been trained. If I if I wanted something, I wanted to brag. I wanted to rub it in. I wanted to look at this, look what I did. And these men were doing things to not be seen, um, but because they really love people. So that's it. Yeah. And, and also, but here's the other part of this, which I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all for, you know, not the, the ego doesn't need glorification, but we also have to remember that we are glory. We are glorified. We're glorious. And to deny that is also, is also a lie. Mm -hmm. So we have to ride this. There's this fine line we have to mm -hmm. ride of remembering we're spiritual phenomenal beings mm -hmm. and especially for people in prison, you know, they need to remember this first before we can start walking and, and serving and bowing our heads. We have to pick our heads up first. And, and so I, 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 I commend you. And Gandhi said something like, you know, my goal is to be as, as invisible as possible. You know, it's not mm -hmm. about me. It's about what we're doing here. It's about love. And I get that. And for people that are traumatized, we all need, we all need to be seen mm -hmm. first and foremost. That's like the first thing. And so we have to also recognize each other's glory and magnificence and what we've, what we've done. So when I compliment you, it's mm -hmm. not because I want to puff you up. It's because we need to see you. You need to be seen. You know, I, I just share with you like the first part of where my transformation began. And then I met a person named Daniel Takini and his wife, Eileen Takini, and they were their master trainers and coaches. And um, uh, sort of like in the vein of the Tony Robbins or, you know, the and um, like uh Neurolinguistic programming, phenomenology, you know, Christian exist existentialism. And I remember they were taking us through a two hour, 200 hour training program to become transformational coaches. And they wanted to find like the, the influencers of the prison to choose. And I was one of eight people that in our cohort that they chose. And they only did three cohorts. So I went I, at the time I was president of Toastmasters. I had just got my AA with a 4.0 valedictorian and was began speaking doing things outside of the box and and i was getting a lot of praise and getting a lot of certificates and you know like the trying to be the head of my class in 2000 this was before 2009 and it wasn't to get out because no lifers had got out yet that i had ever saw you know so 
I had just stepped into my transformation and now I'm getting all these kudos. And I went and when we did this training, we had to do it on film for, it was two and a half hours on film in front of the room. You'd train a part of the manual for 20 or 30 minutes and live and in the moment. And then they'd give you two and a half hours of feedback on your way of being and they'd go deep. So I remember I went last because I wanted to prove to them that I had value. I wanted to prove to them that I was worthy. I wanted to prove to them that, like, look, I can get out one day and 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 be make an impact in this world. There goes my wife. Hi, Brenda. <laughs> so, um, and so I, I I I trained part of the manual, and there was this chart in there in the book. And I remember them saying, "Be creative, make it your own, share your personal stories." And so I I did that. And I changed the chart on the, in the manual. And, and I remember his wife was flipping through the manual in my, my feedback session. She's saying, where's that chart? Where's that chart? And I was like, it's on page 68. And she's like, goes to page 68. She says, no, it's not. No, it's not. That's another chart. And I said, well, you guys said be creative. I was creative and I, I changed it. I, I made it better. <laughs> she said, my husband had trained this manual over a hundred times and he's never changed that chart. He created the chart. So where else in your life is this showing up? Why did you do that? So I got defensive and angry and uh, not angry, but like defensive. Like, and I said, man, I rewrote this curriculum three different ways, three different times. And I remember dad saying, let me see those. And I had rewrote the 668 page manual um, three different ways to try to impress them, to, to earn my value, right? And, and I didn't fully know that at the time. I, I just wanted them to see that I was worthy and so Dan they were kind of joking about it Eileen was kind of like the bad cop and Dan was the good cop and he and he said these words he says he said after he saw that they, they said did anybody else do this did anybody else rewrite this manual three times no nobody had it even done it once so Dan says he said son why are you working so hard and I hadn't heard the word son from a man from 14 years so he said, son, why are you working so hard? And I said, I want you to know that I, I can do this. I, I, I'm different. I don't, I don't think I need to, to be here anymore. And I wouldn't go home for another 10 years. He said, where does your value come from? And I said, from God. And he said, where does your value come from? And, and I said it again. And then he said, in theory, in theory, and what he was telling me was like, in theory, you believe that, but in practice, you're attempting to gain your value from your, um, the kudos or the attention or the effect, um, accomplishments. And he says, he says, you are infinitely valuable, Rich. If you accomplish anything else and don't get another degree, another certificate, you're infinitely valuable. I want you to know that. He said, work hard in life, um, not for your value, but, but to own a home or to be a good husband and be a good father, have a career that you want, but don't work for your value because you're infinitely valued. Learn how to receive, uh, um, a, uh, you know, an attaboy or uh, like you said right now, Fritzy, like a, a congratulatory word or a pat on the back or a word of affirmation um, in a healthy way without connecting it to your value. And that was... <laughs> That was a powerful transformational moment for me. 
probably the the most powerful in prison. And after that, I said, I am not trying to prove anybody wrong and wrong anymore. I mean, I would send degrees home and my grandma would put them on her refrigerator. And I remember cousins who had never done half of what I'd done by now, they would say, well, that's good, grandma. That's good, Nana. But we'll see what he does when he gets out. And that would infuriate me. I would say, you know, I'm going to get a master's degree and show up with a BMW and a $100,000 a year job. And then you're going to believe that I've changed my life. And after that, after Dan shared that with me, I said, I'm not doing that anymore. If people choose to believe me, um, great. If they don't, great. I'm going to, I'm not going to um, live my life trying to prove um, that I'm valuable to people no more. So I, I, I do receive what, what you're saying. That's the point. Um, but it's still tough because of uh, the judgments of the world. If, you know, to come across as arrogant and, you know, and I represent a beautiful organization and I don't, I'm cognizant of, you know, there's a lot of hatred in this world and we want people to say, well, those guys at crop are a bunch of arrogant people. We're not, We're, we love people. That's the heart of our work. Yes, but this value, this this inherent value that you've just um, shared with us, is such a powerful story. And I hope everybody listening to this really takes this in because you don't have to do anything to be valuable. Just being here is enough. Mm -hmm. But you're enough. Yes. And we have a lot of work to do, right? Mm -hmm. We're still excelling and succeeding because that's kind of fun, right? Isn't, yeah. isn't that why it's like, this is fun. You know, yes, I'm fantastic. Yes, you're fantastic. But and look what we're doing. Like, just look what we're doing. So how did you go from living with a shot caller, moving to Corcoran, level three, and then suddenly you're doing all these things. And, and we haven't even started with everything that happened at CTF. So right. Um, try and give us a bit of a summary because, but okay, a detailed summary because we need to know these. This is these are, this is a roadmap for people so that they can really understand. You don't have to be in this toxic masculine, um, violent paradigm, right? No, you don't. Um, but if when one isn't there in their life to take a stand for a new future for themselves. Um, I think it's easier to stay in the toxic masculinity or at least to put up the mask that that's what you believe. But um, when you're ready to, to fully live a new way, then I think that the, the grace or the courage will come to you. When I said, you know what, I'm going to, I don't care if I die in here. I'm going to make my grandparents and my parents proud. And I'm going to, I'm not going to live a racist or live openly and say that I hate these people or I'm not going to do that anymore. And even if it means my life, then so be it. When I was ready to do that, then I had the power to do it. When I made the decision, the, the, the power was already there, but I didn't realize it. Now I was willing to step into it. Um, and others feel the same way, but they're not willing to do that openly yet. And and I've seen men who were hardcore committed to that old life when riots happened and they had the power to sit down and say, no, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to live in alignment with my highest commitments. 
my family, my freedom, my kids. And if I go there, then I'm not, my life is out of alignment. And so it's a it's a powerful moment when that happens. And when we make that decision, right, it's a choice. What happened was Fritzy um, from Corcoran, I had a cousin that worked there, long story short, and he reported that we that we were we weren't even on the same yard. We were at the same prison and he still reported it. And he did the right thing according to law. But um, um, so they shipped me to New Corcoran. Um, and in New Corcoran, there was I was there one month and there's riots that got us locked down, tear, full tear gas and the whole bit locked down for 10 and a half months. On those 10 and a half months, I immersed myself in studying from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. and um, doing any correspondence course I could get my hands on, just reading books and reading the Bible. And um, I had a cellmate. Uh, for Southerners, you're not supposed to sleep during the day. But if nobody, if your cell is solid enough not to tell on you, no one's going to know on a lockdown. So this guy would sleep till like one o'clock. But it was it was a blessing to me because it was just pure silence, like a monastery in there, just to study. You know, you don't get that out here anymore to 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 read. You know, from six to and then he had a bad attitude from like one to three o'clock till he had his coffee and some lunch. So from six a.m. to three, that was a time where just immersed for ten and a half months, nine hours a day of uh, studying. Um, eventually they knew that peace wasn't going to come on that yard. So they shipped us out and they shipped me to CTF North and 2000, January 2nd, 2001 and ended up paroling from, I was there at CTF North for, um, two and a half years. Um, it was a level three at the time I was a GP level three and they switched, uh, at two and a half years. I got my points dropped, um, to, uh, level two. And I just walked right over to Central Yard, um, CTF uh, Facility C, they call it now, but it was always called Central. Um, and then it was at Central that I really grew up. You know, um, I got there in June of 2003. I ended up leaving Central. I was there 18 years, two months, and and uh, two days. So I saw R&R on &R, you know, January 2nd, 2001. And I walked out March 20th, 2019, but at CTF Central, um, there was a courageous woman who worked there who was responsible for the college program. And there was like seven people going to college. And that was one of the goals I made on that lockdown. I want to go to college. I always, those teachers, when I was a kid, if you only apply yourself, I liked teachers. I thought teachers were amazing people. And I was like, maybe one day I can be a teacher of some sort. And I didn't know my calling or area of giftedness much, but I just thought <clears throat> I got to go to college because I maybe I can be a teacher someday of some sort. Um, and so uh, in 2005, I started the college program. I've shared with you in the past that at CTF Central, when I got there in 2003, there was one AA meeting in the cafeteria or you know, chow hall um a month that was the only program maybe in two a year there was a veterans group that i went to be a part of and did the flag folding ceremony and but i just said whatever 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 i can be a part of i will and then through going to college started finding the people who were living truly pro-social lives and there was a handful of maybe you know, 15, 20 people and 
it was us who said, well, let's create CGA. You know, uh, we didn't create CGA, Criminals and Game Members Anonymous, but let's let's get the materials and start a CGA here. Let's start a Toastmasters here. Um, let's invite other organizations to come in here. Let's invite victim impact organizations, five mothers of uh, murdered children to come in. And we just started finding ways to um, bring uh, life and rehabilitative programming there um, and, let, and the college program. And so that was the first half. And I, I continue to serve in the chapel as well. And, and in the education, I was over the education department in there, so allowed to um, teach classes in there. Um, and then 2010 came, and that's where I met the crop organization guys. They all, we all had come from other places to come here. And at that time, I was kind of like one of the, you know, valedictorian, you know, kind of like maybe the one of the, at least for the Mexican, there was no other Mexican guy doing what I was doing, but cream of the crop. And I met these guys, they're all smarter than me, hands down, easy. <laughs> you know, the Ted Grays, the entrepreneurial thinker, the Jason Bryan, who left with prison with two master's degrees in philosophy and psychology, the Matt Braden, who's never got a, a, a B in his life, um, um, whose brain is like a machine, uh, eidetic memory. Um, and we started hanging out through sports and college, and we started working in a college program. And when you get those kind of guys together, like the movers and shakers, the anti-social prison politic guys, and we also, most of us got chosen for the career, I mean, not the, the transformational coaching workshop, Ted, Jason, and I, and we just formed this think tank and it was called Insights. We called it Inside Solutions, it was a name that Ted came up with. And we had another friend you named Eugene who was close with Ted and Ted became my best friend, and we're all like family. I love these guys more than many people in my family. They are my family. Um, and we became brothers in there, a bond that is um, um, un really unbreakable. Um, it's sort of like the movie Band of Brothers. For the next 10 years, we vision casted. And, and at first, there was these alcohol and drug programs in there, and we thought, Eugene had the idea of convict clinicians. What if, and I don't like the word convict anymore, but back then that's what we called ourselves, convicts, inmates. What if we can create an alcohol and drug counseling organization here at CTF? What if we could train folks to become drug counselors to their peers, state certified alcohol and drug counselors? And we had a progressive warden. Eugene was a three striker. They overturned a part of it, Prop 47 to 36. He got out. The warden was so progressive, he let him come back in nine months later and lead this program. And we came together and uh, simultaneously doing the transformational coaching, sim simultaneously getting our working on our bachelor's degrees, um, simultaneously beginning to do book reading with, with um, high school students, simultaneously after we became the transformational coaches creating a vision casting group on a Friday night called The Quest, simultaneously um, doing transformational coaching with college students from Hartnell College in the local area there. Warden would let those college students come into the prison for three days, eight hour days inside the visiting room. And we would coach them on, on you know, choices and vision casting. 
past, even creating a future worth having and and how to get away from bitterness and forgiveness and um, change versus transformation and um, um, the responsible perspective, having more power than the living a life of victimization. So all those, you know, there were times when I was like on four, nine executive bodies and in 14 different groups and facilitating, you know, 11 at a time. It was just madness, you know, but there was just no stopping us. We were willing to step into anything and create anything and, and, and t- I, I thank God for Ted because he's he's relentless in his entrepreneurial thinking. You know, we, we get a program up and running, and then he's got a two or three more that he wants to create. And we we just were the four that were willing to hang with him, and um, you know, his father as well. A uh, crop started because Mitch loved his son and wanted him free, and he didn't give up on him. And we got the pleasure of, of being friends with him and. And um, so that's, those are some, it's just a, it's like, it's like you talked about, Chris, it's like drinking water from a fire hose. There's so much that went on in those years. It's hard to talk about in a short show. So, so a couple of questions. So the students that came in, uh, the high school students, how did, there was a fundraising drive for a scholarship. Can you, Mm -hmm. How did that that idea come about, and what were the results of that ex- experiment? Okay, we were invited to a book reading project. Palma School is like an elite private school for all boys in Salinas, California. These kids go on to be politicians, Duke, Yale, Notre Dame. They came into the prison to read books with us, as like a service project for to talk about when they go to college. You know, they came in there to, to teach us something. And, and um, you know, it's kind of, most people think that's crazy. High school students reading books with lifers. Well, we got there and we, we learned that it was, I don't know if you've seen, Lisa Link did an episode on it. And it, it was a double value. They brought something from their young stories to us and their drive and their commitment to school. They were everything that we only imagined could be possible for ourselves. And yet we had the experience of the hurt, the pain, the trauma, that maybe a lot of them didn't experience. You know, one of the kids was like, his biggest mess up in life was taking the car to go play tennis, you know, without his parents' permission. That said, our commitment to love them, and we saw, Ted had the idea sitting there one day, we, we had just published a book called Men Built for Others. We, in this book, Men Built for Others, we found 50 of the most transformed people of prison, had them all submit their stories, and kept 11 of the most transformed stories in this book. So there's 11 transformational stories of the people that we knew in Soledad, all lifers except for one, and they're all free today, living amazing lives. But at the time, they were all still incarcerated. So Ted had the idea, what if the proceeds from our book and um, can you hear me? Yes. What if the proceeds from our book, um, what if we can find an inner city youth who doesn't have the money to go to Palma school? We're talking like $52,000 over four years. And do fundraisers in here and sell our book um, and put all that money together and raise $52,000 for a young man to go to Palma school. And what that's part of our philosophy and the work that we do today. We call it going 
an inch wide and a mile deep in someone's life. You know, a lot of people, they try to provide a mass amount for so many people and they miss people, right? But what if we could go an inch wide and a mile deep and find that one and then the next one and then the next one? And so, yeah, we, um, Ted, I mean, I, 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 I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about my best friend because he's a brilliant thinker. And he came up with the P. There was fundraisers in there before, but nothing like this. You know how PBS? Have you ever watched PBS? <laughs> PBS style fundraisers. There's like tears. So if you give this amount, you'll get you know, um, you know, an email bag. and a yeah. Uh, yeah, tote bag. But if you get this amount, you'll get these you know this bigger package. And if you give this amount, you'll get this bigger package. So Ted came up with like the three or four tiered system. If you, if you give two dollars or twenty five dollars, um. And $25 is some, $27 is like an average pay. Well, maybe 80% of people in prison, that's the most you make, $27 a month. But if you give two to 25, you'll get a chrono and a letter, a Minbill Brothers letter from crop organization. If you give 26 to 50, um, you'll get a personal letter from, um, you know, about, I don't remember all the, all, all the details, but like a personal letter from crop organization from Ted's father, about you for the parole board, a, a chrono, and get to come to our event where we present this scholarship. And if you give this amount, you know, then just, and just so on and so forth. And then we would get packages from our family members, like a $200 package once a quarter. So Ted says, let's find the 50 most influential people in this prison and bring them in and make it a competition. Who could raise the most money? And then is anybody here willing to give up their package? I said, I'll give them my package. He said, I'll give up my package. So we got three people first, second, and third place. So Ted gave up uh, a $300 package. I was willing to give up a $250 package. And another person was willing to give up a um, $200 package. That's a lot. That's a lot. So imagine all you got to go out and get people to give. And if you get the most, and you can team up with teams. And so it was a robust strategy. And yeah, over the, the young man um, ended up that they chose, uh, Sion Green. Is a phenomenal young kid who's, you know, I think his senior year of college now. He um, uh, he went. He ended up starting as a tenth grader there, and so um, we only needed to raise thirty three thousand. But Fritzy, imagine this: imagine you're the teacher at a private school, and these guys invite you into the prison and they want to ask you a question. Would you allow us to raise um, fifty two thousand dollars for a student? Now, for, if I'm a teacher and I think, look, guys, how are you going to raise $52,000 from prison, from people who make eight cents an hour? Like, I don't want to set you up for failure. I mean, maybe you guys could raise two or 3000 but how can I take that to my dean and to my president of this school? And, and what if they, like, this kid gets in school and you, you don't come up with the rest of the money? You know, like, what are we going to do here? But they didn't do that. They believed in us. And... Jim McLeddy and Mia Mirasil were two teachers from Palma that believed in us. And they said, let's do it. They, they believed in the vision. And, you know, the rest is history. We did the work and we raised $33,000 for Scion to graduate from Palma. Yeah. And what you actually did, though, symbolically, is you gave yourself that scholarship you put yourself through prison, through through school. That's what you did. You you healed the little child that didn't get 
the proper parenting and the proper love and proper nurturing, you heal that by that action. There's, now that you say that, we were allowed to bring 100 people to the event when we presented him with his first check. And I can send you the picture. I think I did send it to you once I got before. It, yeah. And I didn't realize it until you said it now, but the men were so proud to be there to see Sion and his family receive this check. The first of many. Um, it was what no one did for us. And it was so powerful. And we gave speeches and we had music for them, some poetry and some rap. And even one of our buddies who worked in the chow hall made a cake for that night and put extra icing on it. <laughs> he was about to get in trouble for putting extra icing and we all brought coffee for Alma school came, like the students came, the families, the faculty. I couldn't believe these guys. The first check was like 6,000 something dollars. And they had cake for us and they celebrated this family in the gym there. The warden came and shook our hands. And I remember the person who worked in the kitchen was coming to, who is this guy who made this cake with icing? And as soon as I saw him coming in and I was the host that night, I was like, and there's the food service manager. We just want to thank them so much for providing <laughs> cake for all of us here tonight with extra icing. And just, and they're, and they're like, oh, me? Oh, oh, thank you. you know, they, were so, they, they got human in that moment. And it was just a, a human, and it was a night of dignity and humanity and but um yeah there was there was that's a beautiful that you say that you know fritzy the, the even more beautiful thing is scion's mother um was in a terrible accident when she lost an eye mm. and um so she was out of work for a time we couldn't have known that going into this his father ended up needing a heart transplant not heart surgery a transplant and he got put on a list and he was out of work for a time while he healed and he did get that heart transplant. Um, and they are two parents who just fought for their son. They wanted their son to have a future, you know, and play in the NBA one day. He's a basketball player. And, you know, they also brought him in every quarter to sit with our core team in the and do counseling, like counseling sessions or coaching sessions with a whiteboard. And if he was getting bad grades, we were never going to be the guys. We're, we, I hate that scared straight garbage, you know, and we were never going to be the guys that say like, come on, man, we're putting all this money together for you. You know, you need to get, you need to be getting A's and B's, you know, that's not us. If he's, if he's falling short, this cool. He was learning Mandarin, um, world, um, I don't, I don't, I don't know the classes, but I know one of them was Chinese, public speaking, and he's very gentle, um, soft spoken. So it was going to be a challenge for him, the new, the new workload, and, and they would bring him in. I said, who else in this country is bringing their parents in with a bunch of lifers to, to love on and coach him and encourage him and motivate him? You know, who else is doing that? And they weren't, and it's, he's doing great things today. So, yeah. Okay, so okay, so this display of possibility and unstoppability, right? This is what you you guys, you're this powerhouse team of we can do anything. I mean, you just you proved it to yourself in the thirty two thousand dollars or the fifty two. 
whatever that amount is, you ended up putting him through the whole school, right? Through the whole. Yes. 33,000. And then he um, got a scholarship to the Academy of Art University in San Francisco. Wow. I mean, look what you did. What is it? One inch wide and. An inch wide and a mile deep. And a mile deep. I mean, that changed his life, right? Mm -hmm. And it changed every man who participated in that event's life, right? Yes, we feel it's unprecedented. Yeah, but it it's changed my life too because I think about it all the time. You know, it's and, and Barack Obama. He even he sent it an Instagram mm-hmm. post about it. Yeah, Twitter, and he watched the episode that Lisa Lincoln did on it. And when I first got out, um, I was able to email back and forth with her and Lisa Lincoln and her husband, Dr. Paul Song. And they ended up going and visiting Ted in prison um, with state controller Betty Yee and her husband and Ted's parents. And they heard about what we were doing. And they they heard about Ted's story and our Inside Solutions group and our Phoenix Alliance and crop organization. And they heard about the book the book reading project and Mimbo for others and the the training with college students. And so Lisa inquired deeper, you know, the season seven, episode one, prison and prep school. She did a, a beautiful story on, on the work that was being done there. And that's what she does. She goes to the different corners of the world to find those stories that no one else knows. And I can't watch, I can't watch the episode without getting emotional to this day. And I've probably showed it to people 12, 15 times now. Um, and I still see the faces of those who, are there that I don't think need to be there anymore. Um, men who are living their lives sacrificially, selflessly, and and who made a lot of bad decisions 25, 30 years ago. And I just miss them. And it breaks my heart because I know that they don't need to be there anymore. They can come out here and do just like us. They don't do, we're not an anomaly. You know, our team is not an anomaly. We're, I know that people say you guys are special. Sure, we're special, but there's tens of thousands more like us. Um, we're, we're that could do anything that we're doing easy. I agree 100%. And the thing is, the thing we have to understand is why are you in prison? Like, that's the question you're saying is why are these men in prison? The answer is, is because they're in prison. That's the only answer. And what I've found about what what I understand about that answer is they may need to be there to help somebody get through. Mm-hmm. They may, sure. may need to save a life. They, we don't really know what what all the the spider webs are, what the purpose of those spider webs are. And maybe mm-hmm. if they got out, they would have died. You know, we don't know. We don't mm-hmm. know. So we can't, it's not a tragedy. I, th- I think that's the thing. We have to, empower them with where they're at in this moment yeah definitely. and because because right now in this moment they can do magnificent things they don't have to wait to get to get out the only difference is to me is the mattress True. and the food and some mm-hmm. of the restrictions but other than that they can do everything that you you guys did because that was those were your only two restrictions and you got extra icing so you know what <laughs> i'm saying are. so many are so many are doing 
phenomenal. You could do a lot of more episodes. Lisa Lean, call her up. She's there's, there's the work that you're doing. I mean, I've seen your videos on on YouTube. I I remember when I first met you, and you was like, "You got to watch this video before we talk." And then next thing I'm I'm a mess because it's like so beautiful. Um, and I think that's what we're in a new era of transforming mindsets in this country from retributive justice to something new and getting people to see, you know, um, something else is possible. When I went into Solano, um, I, I spent 50 hours in Solano prison. Um, oh, the last of weeks, my earbuds died. Can you hear me? Oh yeah. So I spent 50 hours in Solano and I first walked in there and I saw the concrete and the barbed wire and, you know, um, the the yard with the little the only green the only color besides grays and blues was the, the 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 green grass and my first thought was prison doesn't have to look this way who told us it has to look this way um this is a, an environment that breeds despair not only for the incarcerated but for the officers as well I yeah. can feel their despair and they're there to do a job. And it's like, I can feel their despair. I can feel the despair in the air. And I'm like, why does it have to be this way? You know, it could be something whole whole new if we just imagined it and chose it and made, you know, voted on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, I think we're stepping in a new era of new thinking about the carceral system, the folks that are there, you know, and America, I think on the most part, you know, I'm just like anybody else, like the comeback story or the, we love a comeback story, but if we, if we realize like 95% of people are going to get out, what type of neighbor do you want? You want someone who's been punched in a crazy looking environment for 20 plus years and, you know, do that to a dog and see what kind of dog you get. You know, you're not going to have, you're going to have a wild dog that's terrorizing other dogs and human beings but um if you if you treat them with humanity and dignity and say look let's provide vocations and education and life skills and healing for their trauma and an opportunity to vision cast for a future worth having and new mindsets that are effective and powerful and productive if we made that available um, in a way where they could immerse themselves in that. Look, you come out here, you'll come out being world leaders. That's somebody I wouldn't mind living next to my grandparents. Um, so, or parents or anybody else. So, well, the other speaking, model. Speaking definitely. of world leaders, can you tell us now about all you guys are out, Matt, Ted, Jason, and you, you're all out. Mm-hmm. And you've taken crop from the inside, which you cre- mm-hmm. which Ted created, Ted's dad created. And so tell me, tell me how, what has transpired in the past, I don't know, year. I mean, what is that check that you got? And then all the other money you've raised? Yeah. So um, let's see. Uh, I'll I'll, I'll try to be brief. Um, Let's see. (laughs) So I was released March 20th, 2019. Uh, 13 months later, Ted and Jason were released, uh, maybe Nine months after me, Matt was released. He actually received a 1170D. And Jason and Ted ended up being commuted by the governor. And not commuted to go to the psych or board, but commuted to time served. Ted had 40 years to life with 100% time. 
Jason had 26 years to life with a hundred percent time. And, um, they were commuted and walked out five to 10 days later. And I remember having uh, trouble finding an apartment and, you know, they want a 640 credit score and two years of, uh, um, uh, a year of pay stubs and uh, two years of rental history. Well, I didn't have any of that. And Ted's dad knew that I was looking for a place and he had already hired me uh, to start the Prison Post podcast. And um, he's called me up one day and says, hey, um, do you um, you still looking for a roommate? I said, yeah. He said, I think I know somebody that you might want to be roommates with. Um, I said, yeah, whoever, let's let's do it. <laughs> you know, I'm about to, about to be homeless here living out of my car and um he said well your buddy ted's coming home in five days <laughs> so, you know he loved his son he loves him ted lives out there in florida with him now you know imagine they're, they're neighbors now and such beauty father have a like like i'm close to my mom he's tremendously close to his dad he's married i had the blessing of marrying ted and his wife but we got an apartment in Folsom, California, uh, up here. I'm in Rancho Cordova now, but at the time we're in Folsom. We found a three-bedroom place. We turned that into our offices. Jason would come over. Matt would come over. Um, later on, uh, Ken Oliver joined the team, and we had different supporters, and that was our headquarters in that apartment. And um, so a lot of the ideas of um, our leadership development we started brainstorming and the, and the, and the, and the, the short of it is what's lacking out here in reentry. So much of reentry is siloed with, or the organizations not working together or nonprofits fighting for dollars. And, you know, there's vitriol in different ways, but how could we be bridge builders? How could we create a one-stop shop? How could we create a human um, centered holistic program that, allows people to be, to experience uh, freedom and opportunity to make a livable wage and not just give them, you know, an opportunity for a gig economy job. How could we create something where they could be a part of community service and a part of a community for at least a year, a part of doing community service, because we believe like the service, there's freedom in serving. And if, if a person makes that as a way of being in their life, um, it's just, live such a um a, so much more of an empowering life a free life i think that's one of the sad things when i see former lifers come out and you get busy with the hub of the life and when they stop serving there's like the um, they lose their vision and lose a little bit of their drive um so hmm. to be of service is very important give back living amends so in the end with all the brains coming together we created um a reentry program that would invest in people over punishment, um, not treat people as subhuman beings. We've traveled different reentry facilities across the state and seen how others were doing it. And it was an opportunity for us to learn how not to do it and to see six to eight people crammed in a small room with only this amount of food. Um, you have to have cameras in here because you have to watch them. Do you let them have a cell phone? No. Imagine what they'll do. Well, what are they going to do that you don't do? 
Um, you know, is this place co-ed? No, because you got to be careful. What if they hook up? Well, people in the real world hook up. How about <laughs> trying um, treating people as the human beings that they are in in this world instead of the subhumans that we were sort of treated that way for the most part while we're incarcerated. And so we have we had the idea to create a career campus and now it will open this next year in in Oakland and we're in Oakland and Los Angeles. Um, so it'll have three months of leadership development. Um, and we're the coaches still, then we've hired new coaches and trained coaches. Um, some of our friends that were with us in there as coaches are now hired from crop uh, out here to be coaches. So we, we take an intense uh, three months of, of leadership development. Simultaneously within these three months, they'll get digital literacy um, with, with like um, Google Suite, um, there's a couple different digital literacy tracks that they would take financial literacy. We have live bankers come, um, and, and teach everything from how to write a check. I didn't know how to write a check when I got out. So how to write a check to how to own a home. We will, um, so that's amazing. And then there's professional workplace skills. They'll get those as well. There's a lot. We don't, we don't know. We don't know. So there's a lot of professional workplace skills that, um, um, that we need. You know, the other day, I remember on a Zoom, there was a gal who said, oh, your hair looks so beautiful today. Can I say that as a guy to, to one of my colleagues? Your hair looks so beautiful today. I noticed too, but am I allowed to say that? So we don't know. I mean, we've been away so long, over half our life. What can you, what to say, what not to say, what to do, what not to do in this new world out here. So, so and then on Fridays, we would, we would have community service built in. So we'll go, you know, whether read books to the elderly or go, you know, clean up a highway or a park or volunteer in some way and that'll be part of the day on Friday and then go do something fun like bowling or you know the baseball game or and that community will live together for a year there are people that can be in our program that don't have to live at the facility and along with that we give them a thousand dollar a month stipend um, 600 of that goes into the checking account um, they can spend how they want um, 200 of that goes into a secure credit card to help them build credit from the moment they're out to the moment they, they leave and 200 goes into a savings account that can't be touched until they leave. So they'll have money for first and last month's rent as we, as we connect them to long-term housing providers that will give them an opportunity to, um, to live at a, you know, a middle-class apartments, or if that's what they choose, um, where they don't have to have the rental history and the, hopefully they'll have the 640 credit score by then but or a year pay stubs but they'll recognize what they're doing and then we chose careers in tech you know some some of it is because we believe in the talent of people that are incarcerated that they can do anything you know we're not if a person wants to go into the food service industry or construction that's awesome you know if that's what you want to do do it do it well whatever you do do well go go get it but I think there's a, a belief even in us as incarcerated people that we're not smart enough or good enough to do anything besides, you know, something that would make $20 an hour or something. Um, and we know that's not true. So we wanted to create a, a pathway in tech. Um, and there's some movement right now in, in that space, tech equity, and there's the future of work. And what, what does that look like? And so we um, found like anywhere from two to four tracks. We, we're definitely open to expansion, but like B2B sales, 
you know, I, I, I sold drugs before. I tell you that I wasn't good at math, but I mean, I mean, when I was at selling drugs, all of a sudden I knew all my customers and I knew how to do math and I found the scales and everything else. And so we have the brains for it. So yeah. what about if you're selling software or, um, so something about that makeup, you know, is, is, is there and, and we're, a lot of people are well-spoken and, you know, sales is a track for B2B sales, um, learning that. And we partner with different um, um, tech companies that will do the training for nine months, nine months, like seven, seven hours a day for nine months um, on the weekdays. Um, B2B sales, UX, UI design, graphic arts, so many talented artists in there, as you know, um, UX, UI design, um, designing interfaces um, like um, like the Zoom meeting or also, you know, different graphic arts uh, for companies, web development. We just formed a, a partnership with SAP, the second largest like engineering company in the world. And we're brainstorming like what would be the best cutting edge? Because we don't want to get them in a career path where five years from now that path won't exist. Right. So we're this, these are still things that are being molded. But we took th these ideas to the state. And they loved them. And um, we found a champion in Assemblywoman Wendy Carrillo and Senator Nancy Skinner. And the Assembly granted us a workforce development contract for $27 million. And Senator Skinner uh, gave us another $1.5 for housing. And if you see our housing, Fritzi, I'd love to give you a tour. Um, I have, You sent me some photos, which I'll, yeah. I'll post here. So that's $28 Point five million dollars you received, and for how long is this? What is this time period? It's a three-year, um, three-year pilot program, and if we prove the model, our hopes are there will be a, a a lot more funding, not only for Oakland and LA, but for other um, uh, major reentry places in California, maybe Sacramento and San Diego, Monterey County, wherever the most people are in need. And That's and beyond that as well. So beyond almost ten million dollars a year. Mm -hmm. And are you spending it like, like, like you have to spend money every day, right? Hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, um, you know, it, well, our but here's the thing, CDCR. I'm pretty sure like these are the numbers as of earlier this year. California gives them, I think, fourteen point nine billion dollars a year. I think the. They say that it costs something like 140000 to incarcerate somebody, but only 2.9% of that is used towards rehabilitation. And we have something from high 40s to early 60s recidivism rate. The numbers fluctuate, but I don't think those are good numbers. If you were to go to a hospital and get surgery, you know, you don't want the doctor who's six out of 10 of his people die or their cancer comes back well we humbly and proudly say that no one who's gone through any of our programs has gone back to prison so we had a quest program 1300 people have gone through quest i'm taking quest now into solano with james willock and we intend to hold that line no one goes back zero recidivism allow us to get a person the housing, which is, you know, lack of housing is number one recidivator. Allow, allow us to get them in community. Community is the method of treatment, you know, like that community learning environment to thrive, to be believed in, to be loved, to be cared for, to they're going to have their own room, their own bathroom, a space to uh, get, get, you know, get on a, have their own laptop. We're going to provide laptops, you know, the computer and 
a belief that you can do this and graduate, making a livable wage, not only like go find your job now. No, we hired someone that does employer development to go out and reach out to employers to say, give our people the shot based on their talent. And so um, when that happens, something new happens in the individual. And I even saw it while I was in prison, we call it the dignity of work. If you walked, if you live in the prison, Fritzy, and you see those who work in the chow hall, who have to work for two years before they can make eight cents an hour. And in the chow hall, it smells, it's hot, it's oppressive. There's split shifts. Like nobody wants to work there. Everything that's that's not bolted down is being stolen, you know. Um, and that's the environment that's, you know, created in there, right? So, but those guys who work in PIA, who can make up to $180 a month after a year, who can make $100 uh, a month um, after uh, you know six months or something like that, who at a at a minimum will make forty eight dollars uh, a month, who get to learn upholstery or carpentry or a trade. You should see the way they walk down the the hall mm -hmm. to work. They're they're moving like this. If you ever see people walking down the hallway and they're moving like that, they probably work in PI. Um, or if you see a guy walking in the chow hall to work, he's walking like this. You know, they don't want to be there. There's no dignity there, right? But over at PIA, at least I can make hundred dollars. You can get anything you want in prison. You know, I can get all my food and I feel comfortable, watch my football games, or, you know. So, um, out here, it's a similar experience. I I have had the ability to ask my mom, how much you guys pay for your mortgage? Uh, well, we pay, you know, fourteen something, and then to give back and send a check to cover my mom's mortgage because it was just a, an act of love that I wanted to do for them for all that it doesn't pale in the comparison with all that they've done for me but that experience my my sister's kids to send my niece who's straight A students best grades ever in anybody in our family straight A's um I tell her I'll give you twenty dollars an A ten dollars a B and and She's getting me for $140 every every semester. <laughs> so, but to to send them that money and send them school supplies, I feel good that I'm making a livable wage to be able to give back. If somebody's hurting, my wife says, hey, let's, can we help this person? Do it, do it, do it. Give until it hurts. If it don't hurt, maybe it's not the best form of giving. But when we give other people that opportunity to not just be having the monkey on their back and struggling with $18, $15 an hour, when we give them that ability there's freedom there. They don't want to go back. Matter of fact, our 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 whole thing with the leadership development is if you have the mindset, um, even if they don't go on in careers in tech and they discover they want to do something else, that mindset will live with them forever. They'll be empowered. So, you know, that's that's really what we're doing today. And we've gone to we've probably raised thirty three million dollars in total and have nineteen employees now, and we should have forty you know, by the end of next year and it's doing some phenomenal work. And, and then I ask, why were you in prison? Because you were in prison, right? <laughs> you wouldn't have been here if you hadn't been through what you had had to go through. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, we, we can't underestimate the experiences that we're having mm -hmm. and the gifts that they bring. And I'm not saying everyone in prison shouldn't go home. But I'm saying, while you're here, let's make this time work. And you're an, an extraordinary example of 
of using almost every minute while you were there to improve yourself to and to to improve the lives of so many other people mm. so many people um i have one other question you keep okay. talking um because we're already an hour and a half but you keep talking about cast in two episodes <laughs> you talk about cast a vision mm -hmm. is there a way you can walk us through this yeah definitely definitely i want to say something about what you just shared right now about like you had it you're you're there while you're there using your time and talents to to add value right there's three perspectives that i like to share one is like the lowest level of thinking like it happened i'm here in prison it happened i'm here and then another one is it had to happen like it had to ha it, it, like in other words um um i don't want to say fate but it happened whatever whatever happened happened i'm here and it had to happen for me to be able to go to college it had to happen for me to be able to find, meet ted gray or matthew Braden, and jason bryant if if to to get me on this pathway it had to happen um did i want to be there 21 years no but now the highest form of of thinking to me is i can now say i'm glad it happened i'm glad it happened i'm not glad that i committed crime and harm people but I'm glad that I was there because of the, the people that I met, the beauty we create, the work that God did in my heart. Um, I don't look to prison as a regret, but it was a place where I learned what it really means to be a man. How do you live? How do you love? And are you willing to live for a cause that's greater than yourself? So that's that's a perspective I like to, to share with, with others. Like, I'm glad it happened. So on vision casting. I think most people that take programs into prison, and I'm not saying that there's not a need for this. There's a lot of time spent on dealing with what happened in the past, what, what we went through, whether it's trauma or contributing factors or pain and suffering, um, our past thinking, our past belief systems, um, um, just it starts with the past and there's, there's value. There. There's definitely tremendous value there, but casting a vision for a future worth having or casting a vision for an unprecedented future is the work that we do in our leadership development. And that starts with them casting a vision for a 10 year future where they're the hero in their future. They're the, they're, they're living an empowered life in their future. So if you ask most people in prison, what do you want to do when you get out? I say, I don't know. I just want to get out. Yeah, but where do you want to live? Where do you want to go? Who do you want to marry? Like, do you what do you do you want a career? What career? Um, I don't know. I just want to get out. I'll do whatever. I'll do construction. You know, so we don't allow ourselves to prison isn't really conducive to um vision casting, it's more conducive to survival. So if we invite someone into a space where they're allowed to imagine, allowed to create space in their mind for what could be, not only what could be, but who they could be. You may say at this time in your life, well, I'm timid. Well, could you say that 10 years from now, I'm living a courageous life as a firefighter? Um, yes. Okay. What would, what would need to happen for you to do that? What what could you do? What will you do? By when will you do it? 
Um, who will you need to meet? Who will you need to reach out to? What requests will you need to make? What promises will you need to make? What commitments will you need to make? Who will you need to forgive? What resentments do you, will you need healing in? What conversations do you need to have? And we press in on all those areas. We press in. The quest work does that. Ready for Life and Leadership for Life does that. And when a person allows their brain to, um, or their mind to begin to imagine, beautiful things happen. Most of us believed, I did too. When I became an alcohol and drug counselor, my 10-year vision included me being an alcohol and drug counselor. That was that was the ceiling for Richard Morales. I would be an alcohol. The ceiling for who I could be and what I could do was right here. And what I learned through the coaching and our philosophy today is the ceiling doesn't exist or it's a million miles up. And, and I'm not talking about something that's out of our current reality. Like I was never going to get out and become an astronaut or a police officer, right? That's not possible right now. It could be possible. Maybe I spend the rest of my life fighting for a cause for formerly incarcerated people to become police officers one day. Maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. But, you know, within um, a logical current reality, what is possible? Well, it was possible for me to um, work for a nonprofit organization. It was possible for me to learn from an, an entrepreneurial thinker like Mitch Gray. It was possible for me to learn podcasting and immerse in podcasts and become a, a creator on YouTube. It was possible for me to learn digital marketing, um, to work on the back end of our website, to go back into prisons, to bring um, our coaching and training and to train transformational coaches in there. I didn't imagine, I didn't allow myself to imagine in that way when I was casting a vision to become an alcohol and drug counselor. Um, and then I did. And now I live my life in a way where I say like, um, there's nothing that's not possible. So if, as long as you're willing to press into it and immerse today, I'm a Bitcoin and crypto investor and I flip NFTs as, as a side thing that I do. And I've done pretty well. I never thought I'd be an investor and, and study macroeconomics. And now that's my hobby, macroeconomics every single day. It's part of, I spend time studying a little bit. And, um, so, um, we invite people to vision cast to, to, to imagine a future. And then here's the difference, Fritzy. Like, so here I am in 2022 on this date. And we ask someone to stand over there in 2032 on this date. And then have a conversation with the person in 20 in 2022 and say, let them know where do you live? What is your career? What type of character do you have? What type of relationships do you have? What kind of friend and employee or entrepreneur are you? Inform that person and then ask that, ask, and then call that person over and have them make decisions from that future worth having in the now. And mm -hmm. if you live your life from those decisions, you'll, you'll inevitably, inevitably realize that you sold yourself short because you will surpass that vision uh, probably in a few years. Uh, our original vision was to raise three million in three years. Well, you know, it hasn't even been three years yet, and it's you know above thirty. So, um, as a way of being, as a natural expression of who people are, to live from a future worth having by making their decisions in the now, based on having that future as if they did have it. So that's what it is, and it's 
we have curriculum on it that we we own and um um it's that aha moment uh, when it happens it's phenomenal and we've seen many people step into their visions so how do we get this curriculum uh i i think we need to have this curriculum in all the prisons in california to start yeah uh, yeah well we started in solano i mean um if people could reach out to crop if they like to <clears throat> have those conversations we could reach out to our executive director croporganization.org um, um we we did bring this to cdcr and they gave us a grant and that allows us to go into solano with it now but we are not um those who are unwilling to share um and to to but um that's definitely that's a, those are just conversations as you know um with um the have to have be had with our executive director and it, it, yeah there's another organization out there um that utilizes our curriculum success stories and they um and they utilize the quest curriculum so um yeah i want to use i want to utilize the, cur the curriculum okay so we'll talk about this okay because right. we're getting trauma talks in every prison and so we might as well get quest in every prison because they need something once they figure out go ahead I think they complement each other. I do too. Yeah. I do too. And, you know, all the videos towards the end of, of our curriculum were all about transformation. And I'll probably include this one too now. Um, and so it's about who are you now? Who are you? And I mean, I haven't, you're one of the incredible examples of who everybody really is. If, if, if they realize it, you know, it's mm -hmm. about waking up to your own potential, right? Absolutely. Step into it. Imagine it, do it. Not in a positive thinking kind of way, but in a, in a, in a, in a like, like it just like hope it happens. I don't know. There's some books out there like, like just, just call it to you. Uh, maybe, maybe there's something to that, but our philosophy is what actions do you need to put behind it? I had a, I had um a person who made a, a, a cast of vision to make amends to everyone he harmed in his past and his family and there's like 15 people and i said okay um and then we'll we, there's some accountability right so he'll say um okay by when will you have the next letter what well, first letter uh, i don't know well if you did know when would it be by next friday okay by so next friday you'll have it okay everybody hear that in the small group you know everybody hear that yeah all right so are is that a commitment you're willing to make let's look at what a commitment means um yes okay well we look forward to it next Friday. Are you willing to share it? You don't have to share it, but we'd love to see that you that you kept your kept your word, lived as your word. And um, so that person would bring it and then read it. And then um, now, would you like help to mail it out? Or um, or do you, would you like someone to go with you or um, put that in the mailbox so we can ensure it to help you stand with you as you keep your word? Or um, do you got it? And we trust your word to do it. And you know, a few times of doing that and people realizing after three months of the quest curriculum of uh, getting that opportunity, it's powerful for them because most of us never have never cast the vision and then made the decisions to see it happen. And it's life changing. Well, and what what it sounds like you're doing is you're showing them small steps lead to bigger steps because you have to, you know, after living in prison and having everything taken away from you, you don't have those those tools just to get things accomplished, which no fault of anybody, but you know, just writing a letter can be hard. Oh yeah, and yeah. that's fantastic. 
their vision may be to write a letter. Yeah. Yeah. That's and some people will say, will say, what was your vision before coming to prison? I had no vision. Well, that was your vision. My vision was to have no vision <laughs> up until now, up until now. And uh, that's a big interrupter when people use like limiting language. We will, we want to get away from limiting language too. Like, um, um, Let's say, wow, I can't do this. At crop, you'll almost never hear the words I can't. I can't remember the last time I, I heard it. Um, you we flip it. So, so how can I? If you have the experience of I can't, how do you flip your experience or shift your experience to how can I? Like, I can't know how to record a podcast. How can I learn? YouTube, Google, Fritzy, you know. <laughs> So are you willing to reach out? You want to step into what you haven't stepped into before. It's scary. I know there's, it's foggy. I know, but are you willing to? Yes. Okay. By when setting dates, the smart goal setting system. So we incorporate that as well, but have you heard of the smart goal setting system? No, but I'm sure. Smart is just an acronym for specific, make your goal or vision specific, measurable. So is there a way to measure it? Attainable, relevant to your life and your context of your life and time bound. That's where the buy wins come in. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's effective. Pretty, I just want to say that um, to my incarcerated brothers and sisters that are in there, that if you're watching the episode, I'm sitting in my home after three years and eight months after, of freedom after 21 years and um, married and have, two wonderful sons of 18 and um, 21 years old Christmas tree behind me. I'm a homeowner today. I have a career. I give back to my community. I speak in different circles, been a part of policy work at the Capitol, speak in recovery communities, speak in um, faith communities. Um, love to give to family and go to family events and committed to reentry. And also going into prisons, as I shared, going into Solano prison for 50 hours and a lot more of that to come. Um, I want to remind you that I'm not an anomaly. I'm not. Um, there's nothing that I'm doing that you can't do. And if you don't believe me, call me when you're out and I'm willing to be a coach and call you to it it's just stepping into it all the possibilities and opportunities are there I'm not saying it's not hard or there's not challenges um but we are not of those who draw back we fail forward and uh, on the hard days we, we we utilize everything that we learned on the inside all the best of what we have to push us forward so i love you all and, I, and I, i'm believing for you but as richie shared Use your time and your talents to make a difference where you're at now. Bloom where you're planted. That's what I want to share from my heart before we hung up. That's what I was going to ask you to do, and you did it. So, Richard Morales, thank you for your time and your uh, wisdom and your uh, your heart, which is changing the world. Yep. Start with the heart. Lead with your heart. The rest will follow. Thank you, Fritzy. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Richard Morales. I hope you found his story inspiring. And I mean, who does this? Who changes not only his life, but the lives of so many men and women 
um, not only in prison, but now in society. His story is an inspiration, and we're going to be using this in our Trauma Talks curriculum as a, one of the roadmaps for the men and women living in prison to find ways for them to not only heal from the past, but also to imagine a future that's robust and, and exciting and possible. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like, subscribe, and share this with your community and also visit our website at CompassionPrisonProject.org. And if you're motivated, please sign up to volunteer or donate. Thank you so much for joining us on this podcast, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>